Welcome to another episode of The Artistic Director with Jacob Alexander Ferg. I am sitting here with Andrew McMasters. Hi. Uh, go ahead, uh, Andrew, just really quick for the people who don't know about you, give us a little bit of background on your improv history and, yeah, your improv history. <laughs> uh, sure. So I'm Andrew McMasters. I am the Artistic Director here at Jet City Improv. I, wow, my improv history. Um, <laughs> I, that's, a, that's a loaded question. I started doing some improv when I was still an undergraduate in Philadelphia, so that would have been around '86, uh, and then I worked in um, casinos in Atlantic City, doing walk-around character, just basically walking around as a character, improvising with people, and uh, in various different ways. And then moved here to Seattle in '89. I auditioned for a group doing some improv stuff, and that's where I met Mike Christensen. Uh, we had a, a group that was called Train of Thought that failed miserably, as most improv groups do. And then in 92, beginning of 92, we decided to launch something and basically put an ad in the newspaper, cast people, and started Jet City Improv. Okay. So our sort of back date of the, you know, if you're going to carbon date when it began, um, we always put down May 18th because that is the poster for our first show. Okay. So that's the date where we go. That is our first performance. That is when we began. And uh, you didn't have the physical building at this time, did you? No, we didn't have anything. Okay. Um, so when did the actual Jet City improv like that we are currently sitting in, when did that come into play? We got this building in 2003. Okay. We were operating from... For a number of years, we were just sort of renting places here and there, trying to figure out where we could do shows. Uh, and then we were doing, for about four years, we did a theater that was down in the Belltown area of Seattle, uh, the old Belltown Theater Center. We did four years there. We left and went to the University of Washington at the Ethnic Cultural Theater, which is the second space yep. that we use for SCT. So we moved there in 97, and we operated there from 97 all the way through to when we could basically get... Then we got this building in 2003. Okay. Uh, so that was kind of where we were up until that point. Um, the jump from Belltown was a 50-seat theater, suddenly to the one in the UW, which was 180 at that time, yeah. and then coming here, which was 150. So it, it sort of... But moving here suddenly allowed us to have... We're not following a show. Yep. We can do shows at any time we want to. Um, the work that we're doing is first and foremost, and if anybody wants to come in and rent the space, you are secondary to our work. You yes. know, yeah, so it changed huge. what we do artistically with having that that goal and having that space. And so, um, what was the process of moving from? What, when was it decided we need to get a building? Why did you pick this space? And how did <laughs> how did you get it? This, you know, the weird part about this space is this space has been haunting us since the day we began. Oh, um, <laughs> back in ninety. One, Mike and I were actually having like breakfast with a bunch of friends, having brunch at a place that was across the street. Okay. And we saw people coming in and out of this building. We were like, what is that old building? And the people who were looking at it were actually unexpected productions because they were trying to find a theater. Oh my God. And they were like, yeah, this place is a mess. And then in 92, we almost got access to it. And the guy who owned the building was like, yeah, I'm not sure if you guys are the right fit. I don't know. And then... He kind of went nuts. Just crazy? He kind of went crazy. <laughs> he ended up living in the building. Okay. Um, he hadn't paid taxes in like seven years. His son finally figured out like what was going on and came and took him out and put him in a care facility and then sold the building. And so the building got sold in, that was 99. 
and then they ran an all ages music venue here okay. uh, as part of a church program. Mm-hmm. And then when that failed, then we took over. So it's kind of this long process, but to be perfectly honest, we've been looking at this building since 1991, 1992. So right when you were starting, right? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Pretty serendipitous that you got it. Oh, it is. And, and the building itself was an absolute wreck. Just, I mean, <laughs> the roof had been, had holes in it everywhere. So the water damage, the chairs were from 1950. Uh, I mean, it was, it smelled like homeless and, and mold. It was, <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> the smell of homeless. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, that's that's an actual smell. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah so, uh, but it's kind of amazing that we were able to get it. And then since then, we've done a lot of work. I mean, yeah. We've upgraded electric. We've upgraded all kinds of infrastructure, seats, everything. I mean, so, the space is beautiful now. I really yeah, I like, love, I love the venue. And um, I, I was told that it used to be, there used to be a radio uh, station based yeah, out of here yeah. because that's, going to try to paint this picture for the listener there's a uh, there's a second tier that sort of overlooks the whole entire theater that has a series of like thin length long windows and it's probably one of the best green rooms one of the best setups for a green room <laughs> i can imagine yeah yeah you get to actually physically right. see the show that's the detriment of a lot of green rooms is like okay we're kind of this is happening out there and we're I don't know. It's hard to pay attention to right. a show beforehand, but it's nice to at least see what's happening. You might be able to hear it, but you won't actually be able to look down and go, oh, I can see the show. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and each one of these buildings, even um, the room that we're recording this in, this one was a room that had a soundboard that would look through the windows to the other room that had the windows on it, where they would then be recording the radio show. Oh. Which is why there's all these series of soundproof rooms and windows and double windows, double pane windows. I mean, all the windows in between the stage and this upper viewing area are all double paned windows in order to make sure no sound bleeds through. Okay. So then that's why we have the sound piped in so you can hear it and then you can watch it through the windows. Oh, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah. Okay. So there's a little bit of backstory for the listener. And now I, this is a very big ambiguous question that I'm about to ask. <laughs> Love you. it. Uh, interpret it as you will, but it's kind of the, the, the nucleus of this podcast, if you will. What would you say is your personal slash collaborative artistic direction? Wow. For me, I kind of have this, maybe it's my latest diatribe. Uh, And of course, you know, things change as you continue to change. So it it alters and it alters and alters. Uh, I mean, when we first started, it was very much about, I get to do some shows. We get to do stuff. Mm -hmm. Over the course of time, it has shifted into how do you help to facilitate the performers and the new people coming in to continue to be better and has continued to evolve into the how are we serving this huge audience? Because, I mean, as you saw here from the festivals, we have huge audiences. Sold out. Sold out every night. Sold out every night. Nearly sold out on almost shows at 160 seats down there and 130 seats here. We are, you know, and, and people who are showing up are not all improvisers. This is audience members who do not perform improv they are here to watch improvised plays or improvised shows so that's fascinating to me and as a result since we have such a huge audience base that is the thing that i need to do the care and feeding for how do we program for it what do what do we do in order to be responsive responsive to them there's a quote and i'll have to find it on my phone but it's an andy warhol quote that is, um, and it's, I'm going to paraphrase this, so it's going to be awful. Please don't hold me to it. Uh, something about the artist is someone who creates something because he thinks that people need it or people want it. So it's really about that thing of, 
artists are kind of sitting there going, yeah, you want this. Yeah. yeah. So here, I'm going to make it for you. Mm-hmm. Do you? Did you ever ask them? Yeah. Um, and I feel like as an artistic director, to be perfectly honest, at a lot of theaters that I go to and other theaters that I'm involved with, the artistic director sits and goes, I'm going to choose a play because I think it's important for the community. Oh, and then I'm going to tell you, you have to buy tickets to this play. Oh, by the way, then your ticket price doesn't cover all the things, so I need you to donate too. And it's like, at what point did you ever ask the audience what they want? Yeah. Which we do improv. We talk to the audience all the time. Literally directly on exactly. stage. Exactly. <laughs> so, so we even started a process of, and I'm in this process right now, I have a survey out to the audience members, a random spattering of audience members to say, what are the books that you're obsessed with? What are the movies you're obsessed with? What things are coming up that you want to see a show created about? And then we just ask these questions and then I take the data, I compile the data down, I hand it back out to our artists who are then going to start to decide what kind of shows they want to create. They see how that feeds their ideas. Then they come back to me and say, these are shows I want to do next season. So it kind of does this whole thing from the audience to the artist, then to me, and then I will curate it and put it in place and then we'll program a season. I see. So, so you're, you act almost more of a, as a, you use the perfect word, the curator, yeah. rather than you are not the one that decides we will do this, this, and this. Every, you're not, it ultimately comes down to you for the shows, but you are letting other artists pick the shows they want to do and then it comes back to you. Right. They're pitching ideas is basically what it is. <clears throat> how has that structure worked out in terms of uh, producing shows and how effective is it? Is it for getting people in? Uh, I, I love it. Um, yeah. And I also feel like it sort of, it built organically in the idea of improv because I could sit here and decide, yeah, we're going to do, I mean, for, for the people who are listening, um, we're sitting in a room with posters of lots of other shows that we've done, you know, uh, an improvised Gilbert and Sullivan, uh, an yeah. improvised murder mystery. Um, I, saw so, the, I saw the Gilbert and Sullivan. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. yeah and, awesome. and so it's all these ideas. It would be one thing for me to come up with those ideas and then say, yeah, let's do it. Why not, since I have such a great group of actors, let their brilliant brains come up with ideas and then I can help them to shape it into a show or make those things happen and then put it together into a season that people will go, yeah, I want to see this and I want to see this and I want to see this and I want to see this. So it it really kind of helps to build an entire package. Yeah. That's what I'm trying to think of. Well, you have, um, Jet City has a structure that I think I've seen sort of other theaters come close to but I've never really seen a fully replicated variant of you have the ensemble team and you have regular Jet City shows right. and you also have uh, outside outside in air quotes because this is a recording uh, directed shows where the shows you have to audition for for example the Gilbert Gilbert and Sullivan right. uh, that was not directly through Jet City it was uh, it was a group that like went came to Jet City and, and did it so that that's an interesting balance. Well, but it is us. It's, okay. So it, what happens is we have a, a core group of, of actors that are Jet City Improv, mm-hmm. and that's the short form. You know, this is the show that we do on every Saturday at eight p.m. Fridays at ten thirty. That is the core kind of company of members. Then from that we also have Twisted Flicks, which is the last weekend of every month. The big old B movies. Yeah. We turn the sound off and we recreate the movie live. Yeah, uh, that's a separate cast as well. Those two casts, core casts get to pitch ideas to me for the eight o'clock shows. And when that cast member says, I want to do an improvised Gilbert and Sullivan, the one that just closed right before this was a British baking challenge. It's basically an improvised British baking challenge. They are all British and there were ovens on stage and they baked. Weirdest thing in the world. Uh, 
However, it was a couple of the actors in the core company who said, I have this idea and I think it would be great. And then they pitched it. And then I said, great, neither one of you have directed before, so can you find a director? They found Alicia Wickstead to come in and direct. Then they hold casting for people, and some of the people who get cast in it may be core members of Jet City Improv. Some of them might be people in the community. Uh, so it just it helps to kind of bring more ideas in. Rather than just yeah. us doing everything by ourselves, we get to bring more people in. We get to do more things. We get to sort of, you know, for lack of a better word, accept and build on what other people are doing and just keep getting better. Yeah, and that's a big risk. That's a big risk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But that's yeah. If, if you're not taking risks, then you're not you're progressing, right? right. Um, and so that's like, and the the one that I'm really I think I'm gonna I'm definitely gonna make the drive down is a tribe a tribe called Yes coming yeah. up. Yeah, that's really I've I've heard that there are not uh, there are some people who are not improvisers who yeah. are not formally trained at all in improv. They just are freestyling or like yeah. prevalent in the rap community here. It's a with the original. Uh, the original pitch for that, that Steve Lang, who's the director of that, the original pitch was uh, Straight Out of Lyrics. <laughs> and I loved that title. I was like, Straight Out of Lyrics, got it. You know, yeah. great, I got it. And then through the course of it, it was, I don't think this fits for what we are trying to do. Yeah. I don't think this fits for the voice that we have and for the cast that we have. And so then it went to a tribe called Yes. Yeah, which I love that name also. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah. It's really Me too. Good. It's like it's a great rap pun, and it also speaks to the improv community right. like larger, which is really yeah. awesome. Throughout the years, there's been an evolving. Uh, I, I I feel like as though there's been an evolving sort of format that Jessica has been following. When did you land on the short forms at a certain short form ensemble at a certain time? Uh, the twisted flicks, and then the directed show. Around what time frame was that? Did that sort of click into place? It's probably been about about five years ago, five or six years ago now that this sort of where we are has clicked, has kind of clicked in. It keeps changing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I even changed the schedule as we went into this year with the way that shows run, and I added in. Um, we had shows that would run for about eight weekends or nine weekends. And I've changed it now so that shows will run for seven weekends at the most. And then we may have a buffer weekend where there's nothing on a Thursday or Friday at eight o'clock. And then I've put it open to the cast. What do you want to do? This is an experimentation weekend. Let's just play. You know what? We're not even going to like, we'll throw some stuff out on Facebook, but who cares? Like, it's really just about us playing. So, and the point on that was, is that then it kind of allows us not to keep going in this constant. We close something. Now we got to open something else. We have this moment where we can sort of play and do something different. Even with this sort of set format that we have, we keep altering it. Like right now, I'm I'm looking at the audiences that we're drawing. The 1030 shows are drawing the smallest amount that we've had in years. Okay. I don't think people want to come see a family-friendly show at 1030 at night. I would agree with that. <laughs> right. So that means that now, as you know, artistic director, I have to look at, well, what do they want to come see? What has been successful? Great. Can we create something that's like this? Can we create something that's in that vein that has those qualities so that now we can be responsive to that audience who wants to come out? Yeah. And the 1030, some of the 1030 audiences that we've had are a completely different crowd. They're showing up and they are, I work in tech. There's six of us. We're ready to party (laughs) and, and we want to see something funny that we really get to like be involved with. And they don't, you know, yeah, the family friendly just doesn't resonate for them. Yeah. And I get it. They've had a few drinks. They're... Right. I'm here to party. This is yeah. going to be fun. 
you know I, I don't want to be told no I can't say that okay yeah yeah, mm, yeah. yeah and that sort of uh, kind of squashes uh, so, some creative liberty that right. improvisers have right however that show at 8 o'clock on Saturday night is our top selling show and will sell out consistently every Saturday night at 8 o'clock and it is grandparents and parents bringing their kids mm-hmm. love it but no, then you know what if that's what that is wonderful that's a great revenue stream and it continues to go and people love it and so long as audiences are still coming to it and it still resonates with audiences we will run it okay, yeah. when that changes then we have to change up so I'm, I'm interested we've been talking kind of the more business technical side yeah. of things I'm interested in what you think about I think the the task of artistically leading a group of people is a very challenging one in a way that it's hard to anticipate what the different sensibilities of your cast are coming in because I th- I think everyone enters a theater uh, with an intent whether or not they realize it there there is an artistic uh, motive behind going to a theater whether it's to get up on stage it's to be funny you know yeah 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 it's a fine balance I believe and how do you Take an ensemble and let them have their artistic intent, but give them all as a collective a direction to to go towards. Uh, that's another big ambiguous question. Yeah. I'll I'll answer it in two ways. Okay, but that's okay. Yeah, that's um, totally fine. The first one is is that when I do talk about art, I do end up talking about what financially comes in because one of the things that I'd heard a number of years ago uh, from a funder uh, of granting that we had gone through was they said, every artistic decision is a financial decision. Every financial decision is an artistic decision. And you need to think that way. Because if you only think about, this is my artistic thing, well, now we have no money, which means we don't have a theater, which means none of us can do that artistic thing. As opposed to if I'm constantly thinking, all I'm thinking about is whether or not I have this space and whether or not we have the money and we have this, well, then our art sucks. So we really have to kind of look at both hand in hand. Otherwise, you you can't continue to be sustainable and then you can't feed more art and then you can't feed more infrastructure and then you can't feed more art. So it's, it's one of those things where it does go this way. There's a large Venn diagram overlap. Exactly. And, and I think that's important that, that we understand that because I've, worked with many artistic directors at theaters who are just like, yeah, and we're going to do this and we're going to do this and we're going to do this. And the next thing you know, they're like, we're $2.5 million in debt. Okay, well then, <laughs> hope you enjoyed that. Thanks, yeah. you know, yeah. and that's because someone let you do that, rather than saying, you know, I want clouds and I want a castle. Great, you have a hundred dollars. Figure yeah. it out. Yeah, right. There has to be some sort of constraint. Yes. Yeah. Um, and artistically, I think the same thing is also true. I believe that people can make a whole lot. In a way, they have to have the parameters with which to make it. Mm-hmm. And that might be from my training as an actor or those pieces, but it's the, uh, great, we can do whatever we want. Wonderful. You want to do a baking show on stage? Great. You want to bake on stage? Great. Let's figure that out. We have this amount of money. Yeah. Okay. We're able to get these European style ovens that will be convection ovens. They'll cost about $200 a piece. What do you think? Great. Let's get two of them. Great. Now we have that. That means we have X amount of money. Well, we have to buy baking supplies for every freaking show. Let's see who can donate things. Like, you just start to get creative. Yeah, it forces you to be creative. Correct. And those constraints force you to think outside of what you would normally do. And I believe that's kind of the key. And that, I mean, I'm talking about it in practical terms, like the baking. But the same thing is true on anything of, you know, we want to do the show and we want people flying. Great. Let's figure out how to do that. Here's 50 bucks. Knock yourself (laughs) out. 
And eventually what happens is people will figure out if I take this old projector, I can project the image yeah, of the person yeah. here. Uh, uh, or if I take a light and I shine it behind them, their shadow shows up and it looks like they're flying. We can figure out creative solutions. You kind of just have that, you have to have constraints to figure it out. Because if you don't, then you go, all right, let's get a flying rig in here and it's going to cost us $80,000 and let's have people flying. Yeah, and now there's no more shows. Yay! Yeah, <laughs> right. We have to sell the theater. So I kind of believe in both things that that in order to feed people artistically, those constraints help. Yeah, no, that's great. And then getting them to know, think think outside of these. These are your constraints. However, we can do anything within these constraints. Don't think of anything we've ever done before. What's new? What's different? How do you want this to look? How do you want it to feel? And that's kind of the job that I try and do with directors during the initial process during the pitches, during the, um, I will meet with directors when I'm thinking about the shows for the season and go, this is what your pitch is. This is this. Tell me more. I'm sort of seeing this when you're describing it to me. Is that correct? Yes or no? Great. How can we take that further? Or maybe even here's two people who have ideas and let's go, why don't you guys get together and Mm -hmm. talk? Because I think you're complimentary and maybe there's a way that this can go together. Uh, a couple of years, uh, two years ago, we had um, two people pitch uh, basically Game of Thrones shows. Yeah, I saw that one actually. Yeah, okay. And so that was Doug and John both pitching the same idea for a show. And I said, you guys have to get together and come up with it. And so they did. And they were very clear on like, I will do this part. I will run the game mechanics. I will run these pieces. Great. And then they figured it out. But I think then also giving them the rest- constraints of you don't, you can't work by yourself, work together. Yeah. Uh, that also helped them to feed what else they could do. Yeah, and that's sort of, I mean, it mirrors improv where it's like you can't, you can't be in complete control. In fact, right. like if you get to bounce an idea back yeah. and forth. Are all the directors for these shows, are they Jet City cast or do you sometimes pull outside directors? We sometimes pull outside. Okay, that's that's an interesting interaction because yeah. <laughs> I'm assuming that most of the outside directors are more stage, like for, for plays, for stage performances. And not, is that a correct assumption? We, we have not gone that far. Okay. Most of the, uh, anytime there's been outside directors coming in, there's someone who actually has probably worked for us before as uh, an actor. Yeah. And so, so they have that experience and they've worked with us as an actor. And so they understand the process. Okay. How do you choose if, if someone's, how, how do you choose the cast? How, how, let's just go yeah. this. How do you, how did you get the cast of people that you currently have? Cause it's a relatively large cast yeah. by comparison to other theaters. We do, um, a number, I don't see the poster here in this room, and of course we're listening on, on a podcast, so yeah. it's hard for any of you to see that. A couple of years ago, we came up with what we consider to be professional standards, and they're not sort of, they're not ideals or goals or mission-driven stuff. It's, it's I believe them to be professional standards. In other okay. words, we believe in uh, the accessibility, the inclusion, um, you know, accepting on offers, all of these ideas, and they're big ideas, and then they're sort of broken down in mm-hmm. there. Part of the one in inclusion and accessibility is we will hold auditions for Jet City Improv once a year. And then that person is now cast. If we cast people, if we don't, then we don't. But we will always hold auditions for Jet City Improv once a year. We will always hold auditions for Twisted Flicks once a year. Every new show that comes up, even if you're like, this is a show we've done before and we have all the cast members, I don't care. You're still going to hold auditions. Because you may have someone who's brilliant, who you've never met before, who's graduated from college and has been doing all this great stuff and shows up and I want them to have a path into this company. Yes. So regardless, you will hold auditions. You will see who's out there. 
you will then decide what a cast is based on those things. So every rotating eight o'clock show holds auditions. Jet City Improv holds auditions once a week. I mean, once a year. <laughs> once, yeah, a week. once a week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, once a year. Twisted Flicks holds it once a year. Uh, we're constantly in the process of bringing people into the machinery and then either continuing to add it. And then with core members, you know, you just get to a point where, even for myself, I haven't performed in a Jet City show probably in over a year. Well, yeah. It's just timing. I'm, I'm married, you know. Yeah. I, I have other things. We have people who are married and have three kids and have full-time jobs. And eventually, at some point, they're like, I can only play maybe once every few months. Great. Then you move into this area. Now I need other people who are going to be available every weekend. So now i got to bring new people in. So I think you constantly just keep rotating and then being clear with the expectations of you're not in this place in your life anymore, and that's cool. However, I still want your experience and your talent because you could help mentor someone who's brand new who's coming in who's 23, 24 and you could help them to learn the style that we've sort of been honing over these years and then you could learn from them as well so it might reinvigorate where you are yeah. uh, and so it just kind of is a great way to sort of put that knowledge back and forth um, How has your relationship with the theater changed now that you haven't been performing with them because I've heard the, I've heard the idea that if you are the uh, artistic director you should not be performing with your cast. I've heard that idea presented to me a couple times, actually. Yeah. Um, because it allows you to remove yourself from the and see with a clear outside perspective on all shows. Uh, has that has it changed your relationship? And how has it? Yeah, if it has, yeah. Uh, very much so. Um, and that's it's kind of one of the things we talk about all the time is the you can't direct from the inside. You just can't because you're not seeing everything that's happening. Um, and for years we tried to, to be perfectly honest, you know, we do the shows and then we sit down afterwards and then I, having been a person who was in the show and then we'd sit down and then we'd do notes. And it's like, I, I didn't see those things. I was busy on stage. I didn't see those things that happened behind me or I didn't see this. I can only now look back through my own lens and say, this is what it was like for my experience doing the show. And based on that, here's what I would say for a note. Whereas if I'm sitting outside... I can see all of it and I'm watching it from the audience's point of view and now I can actually direct from an audience's point yes, of view. Yeah. So we try to have the director of every show is outside of it okay, and then they will watch and then they give notes. Yeah, that's a, uh, I think that's an important thing to understand yeah. because that there's, there's something, there's a bit of clarity when you remove yourself from a situation that you can, you can just see through it. And that's hard because I think a lot of us got into this work because we wanted to do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so you got into the work because you want to do it because you want to get on stage. And yet you are now into a position where you're not on stage because your job has changed from being on stage and doing it to facilitating other people to get better. Yeah, that's a strangely noble thing to have to do. It's like stepping, <laughs> stepping off of stage. Like, yeah. Please, others, come in and, um, and do it. Do you, uh, do you have a process for giving notes to people? Do you have a philosophy about notes or an approach to giving notes to uh, cast members? I don't know if I have a, a philosophy okay. or, or approach to it. Uh, you know, it's difficult. Uh, even during the last show that I just directed here of uh, uh, Austin Translation, the improvised Jane Austen. Uh, yeah. There were a couple times where it was like, this is just not working. And we are all just sort of blowing it out and it's not going okay and I have to just have an honest conversation with everyone but the truth is that was the rehearsal right after the elections so everyone was thrown yeah. and everyone was in a different world oh including my myself yeah. so as a result my notes were a little harsher because 
I'm in this place. Yeah. And they were performing in a whole different place because they were in a different place. So it's just, I think, being aware of those things, which in that moment I was not. So that's a fault of mine. Um, being aware of how you are being affected and what external forces might be affecting you when you're giving that note so that you can actually just be there for them to help them to be connecting with the audience and to help them do the best work they can do. Um, I think that's kind of the key. Uh, do you encourage casts to give each other notes or do you think it should always be through, maybe always a little bit too harsh of a word, but should it be through the artistic director? I think it should be through the director. Okay. Yeah. yeah that's... Uh, giving each other notes on things I think can help if it's like mentor, yeah. mentor, mentee, and it's an ongoing thing like Jet City Improv where you're an ongoing company member. That's great. But if we're doing a show like this, I don't think that dynamic of having someone else giving notes while they are still inside um, yeah, doesn't. Just, I don't think it works very well. It just doesn't work. With such a large cast, uh, I'm going to make an assumption. Maybe it's completely incorrect, but <laughs> there has to be some sort of, or there, I must, I would assume there'd be some sort of uh, internal conflict between cast members, or is it a pretty homogenous, uh, nice group? Depends. Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, we have such a large cast. Yeah, there are groups that will be like, I want to perform with these people. Yeah. Um, or I want to perform with these people. So that, you know, there are separations that sort of happen here and there. I, I've always tried to be very honest with people about, I don't care if you start dating each other, mm -hmm. rock and roll, only you're here to do a job. Yeah. So do your job. And if you break up, I still want you both here. Yeah. And I still want you both to do your job. You figure it out. And if you can't figure it out, no worries. Then, you know, thanks. We'll yeah. talk about it later. Uh, you know, go off and, and go do your own thing. But... You were hired here to do a job, and you're kind of given a great opportunity. You get a chance to create your own shows. You get a chance to pitch brand new shows that you could create out of nothing with a budget. You get a chance to do shows every weekend if you want to. These are the opportunities we're giving you, so please honor them. You know, uh, give it, give it, give it the kind of due that it deserves. Uh, when people start to branch off and want to perform with a specific set of people, do you? Do you think it's uh, there's merit to encouraging that, or do you think it's it's split up the friends and make sure the whole group is is always comfortable with performing with each other? Uh, no, I think there's there's merit in it. Yeah, and just comfortable people together. Yeah, and then also um, with right now with what's going on in Seattle with the Pocket Theater. Oh yeah, and and the Slate Theater, um, the possibilities of of going. You know, I really like doing shows with you. So you know what? Let's get the four of us together, and we're going to do this thing at the Pocket. Great, go do it. Knock yourself out. So there's opportunities for people to say, I want to create something on my own with a couple of these people. Go do it. Great. Yeah. How has a, has the pocket affected the way that you approach uh, your performance or, or has it, have you been in good terms with them or? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Well, I mean, we did, we did part of the fundraising to help make it happen and we've been very, very supportive of all the work awesome. and they've been incredibly supportive for us. Yeah, I've performed there a few times. Yeah. They're great. They're it's great. great. It's great. And, and it's also that thing of, um, the old quote is that, what theater, what is it? Uh, uh, theater are like grapes. They grow best, they grow best in bunches. So it's really that thing of, you know, I, I hear that a lot from theaters that are like, you know, oh yeah. And what rivalry between this, 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 it's like, what, what are you really fighting over? You're fighting over the smallest piece of pie. I promise you, your audience will come to see my show and that my audience will come to see your show. It, we just want more audiences in general. Yeah. Don't fight over the few people that we have. Just start doing more stuff and then more people will come out. Yeah. 
So, so for me, actually, I think the pocket has been a great, great thing for the entire community. In the, in the room behind me, I actually have the original videotape from our first shows. And, oh my God, they're awful. They're, they're just <laughs> awful. But, you know, um, when you start doing a show twice a week for five, six years, and then all of a sudden you're up to four times a week, and then all of a sudden you're up to five, six times a week, you learn stuff. So the pocket provides that possibility of people to go, I get to get on stage and I get to learn. I get to get on stage and I get to hone my craft. And the more stage time I get, the more I get to hone my craft, and then I can go on and do better work. And then that's the goal. We all want to do better work, and yeah, we want exactly. to help people do better work. Yeah. So, Did you have a click moment for yourself where you're like, oh, I've done this a lot now, and it's like, I've sunk into this. I understand how to go about it. Did, did you feel ready to lead the team, like mm-hmm. become the artistic director? I'll, I'll just put like yeah. a random time, like when you got this building. Did you, did you think that you've done, you've done the reps, you'd, you'd worked out enough? I think there's just, there were portions where it became clear that we need to have clear leadership. I know theaters that exist very much in the sense of the commune, right? Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And that's wonderful. And I, I, I believe there are some structures on that that have worked very well. I know some structures that have because then every year they will vote for someone else to be in charge and then that person is now there. Great. Um, at some point, it got to a point where we needed to have clear clearly defined lines of leadership someone says yeah that's my fault i'll take care of that thanks and that ability so there was a point where it kind of becomes that leadership ability I, i do remember one thing that i think was the realization that this company was getting large and it was way way back in the old days i mean this is even before we were doing the shows in belltown and we were renting places here and there I remember showing up for a show and before every show, Mike and I would just stand out on the street with like the flyers trying to get people yeah. to come and come see our show, please, you know, whatever possible. And then we'd go upstairs and we'd do the show. And I remember looking out in the audience one night and going, I don't recognize any of these people. These aren't my friends and family. These are people that I don't know who have shown up to come see a show. And that realization then made me go, oh my God, this is possible. Wow. So we can do something here. And then that kind of shifted to then go, okay, well, then let's make it bigger. Let's make it bigger. Let's go on and do this. Let's go on and do this. So, uh, Were you always the artistic director from the get-go? Or how did you end up in this role of a clearly defined artistic director? For When we, uh, we kind of changed roles over time. I mean, Mike and I are still listed as co-founders. Yes, yeah. We co-founded the organization when we incorporated as the 501c3, which was in 96, which is the nonprofit status, 501c3. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we incorporated as 501c3 at that point, I took over management of those pieces and was listed basically as executive director slash artistic director. So that kind of put into that spot. Then we shifted in 2000, 2007, 2008, we, um, the board of directors, because we have a nonprofit board of directors, the all volunteers who are from Microsoft executives, lawyers, all of the above, accountants. And they get together and we kind of talked about the structure of the company and the way to sort of move things forward. And what they had decided was is that the company should be split into what would be a traditional theater style, which is there is an artistic director and there is a managing director, Mm -hmm. um, rather than having me as the leadership, which is where we sort of were at that point. And, uh, And so then at that point, that split, and we brought in someone just to be a manager just to do the money that 
failed miserably. Uh, so then we hired someone else who helped us out to get things together. And then we got Keith, uh, who was our managing director now. And it's funny because Keith and Mike had actually worked together back in like the late 80s. And Keith was one of the people who started Unexpected Productions. Oh. So yeah. he's one of the founders of that. Uh, he then went off and managed other theaters, large theaters, like million dollar budget theaters. And then he had sort of burned out on it and was like, yeah, I'm kind of looking for a job. And I'm like, really? Because we're looking for a managing director. And I've known him for years and sort of always thought that what he did was amazing work and have always admired him and his work. And so he and I had a chance to like get together and have a beer. And I'm like, do you want to apply for the job? He's like, yeah. I'm like, great. Okay, let's do this. And went through all the interviewing, but it was like very clear. Like yeah. people are taking their notes and they're like, I just want to be known as Mr. Dahlgren. Yay. <laughs> I mean, he's just amazing. So because now it's someone who's a manager who understands the money, understands how to manage the company, but is also an improviser. Yeah. Who understands that process and what you have to go through and all that, which then allows me to really kind of step back and go, I don't really have to think about a lot of that now. I mean, I do because he and I will battle on those levels, but I can really focus more on art. Yeah. Which is great. That's yeah. super. That's super. Yeah. You, you, you take that responsibility away and it's like, yeah, yeah you get to do the thing. This is an interesting thing that I've been thinking about for a little bit. So, so you cast directors for shows. Most other improv theaters that I've personally known about, they typically go through a cycle where I would say an artistic director is in the position for about three to five years maybe and then uh, for whatever reason uh, the artistic director either moves away or doesn't want to do it anymore or wants to have someone rotate in um, and so they leave and then there's a new artistic director and that's I've known a few of them where that has been sort of the lineage of the theater is about every three to five years there's a new they just swap roles essentially and uh, someone leaves so you've been artistic director for 15 years correct? yeah yes well uh, 20. So 20 years, about yeah. About 20 of the 25, basically. So, so that's like, that is a long ass time. <laughs> yeah, it is. And a difficult thing as well, because that is the danger that I'm identifying now. Because once you are in that position for so long, you become the person that's like, oh, okay, well, then Andrew will do that. I know how to do this. This has been this way. Mike's as a question. Yeah. Exactly. Which is, which is that next step of how do you then train the next level of leadership to take over Uh, and how do you define what you do how do you define the qualities that you need in order to be the leader of this company and then how do you help to train people into that position Uh, and that process i think has been about a two-year process now of just sort of continuing to define that working together figuring out what to do to bring people into that leadership bringing in the directors to direct these shows is one of those steps yeah we're going to put you in this position let's see how that works yeah. Do you, have, do you have any other like solutions to that? Because you, that's a scary thing. I mean, I'm I'm I don't know if you're planning on being the artistic director. I mean, you very effectively led this business into at least some some type of thriving. Yeah. <laughs> because if you if you get audiences, yeah. if you're getting sold out audiences at least once a weekend, I think that is you are effectively managing a theater. Have you thought about the next steps of Jet City as it goes into the future, or maybe? And I don't want to like I'm not trying to be presumptuous, but like 
as as you go on, as you have wife, kids, and you're going to be moving right. forward in life at some point. Yeah. Um, have you thought about what that means for the theater and how you could incorporate? I don't want. It's kind of like I'm not trying to like be presumptuous. <laughs> no, it needs to. Um, the organization needs to move beyond the founders. Yeah. The organization needs to move beyond founders at some point. Um, and unfortunately, when founders stay for too long, then that kind of cripples the organization to move forward. So figuring out that secession plan is sort of in the process now of okay. how that works, how it moves forward. How to do that is a, a big question. Um, do you bring people in as artistic associates so that more people have an idea of this? I believe bringing people in as directors on this stuff helps in that first step. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think there's a couple different steps on this of bringing people into the thought process and into the work. I do a lot of other stuff that's kind of outside of that as well because I believe that the artistic director also needs to be the voice to the community. So I serve on the boards for the University District Partnership, which is a business improvement area here. I am the one who then, you know, oh, okay, so the mayor's going to do the Arts Awards thing. I'm going to make sure that I'm there. That way I can shake hands and be like, yes, we're here. Jet City Improv. Hi, how you doing? I will go down to Olympia and do advocacy for arts issues and stuff like that. For, yes, it's important because we want those arts issues to go through. It's also important because I want those people to know Jet City Improv. So as the artistic director, that is my job. You become a vessel for the theater. Correct. And, And you can either sit in your building, which we have here, and do your artwork. Or you can go out and have more people know about who you are and your artwork. And part of the artistic director's job is to be out there. That's their job. You've done this for 20 years. If you had advice for a person who is either starting uh, their own theater company, starting even just maybe directing their college team or something like that, or starting up an indie team, uh, if you could go back and tell yourself the like these are the kernels, these are the nuggets that you need to know now that will preempt a lot of uh, a lot of pain or you know a lot of yeah. like undo uh, work. What would those uh, what would those kernels be? Uh, ooh, I think that you know I, I believe the kind of kernels are there that we all follow. It's just a question of whether or not we define them. Like the biggest one right now that I talk about when I'm talking to companies and I'm, I'm doing keynote speeches is uh, people will always go, oh, you know, improv, oh, that makes me really nervous. It makes me really nervous. And I say, it's really not about an internal focus. It's not about what I'm doing. And in fact, if I'm constantly externally focusing, making the rest of my team look good, then I'm doing my job. So it's not really worrying about me. And in fact, even when I say something and the audience laughs, I know it's not me. It's the fact that I was supported by these people and that's why that happened. So it's not about the individual, it's about the group. And I think that these ideas that we have in improv are really what it is. My biggest advice that I have for people starting is sit down and start to define that for yourself. We do it, but we do it naturally and we've gotten into a habit of doing it and we do it on stage. But I don't know if we've ever actually sat down and said, you know, I believe this. And I believe this. And I believe this. And then once you have those things kind of defined for yourself, then you can say, well, if that's what I believe, then how would I make these decisions? How would I do this? How would these things change? I think there's something magical about being able to write it down for yourself and define that. Um, well, there's when, when you write a thing down, it goes from an ambiguous yeah. and tangible idea to a thing that someone else can point to and say, yeah. that was your idea. Exactly. And so the, these ideas were the like inclusion, acceptance. Do you have any like 
other like tangible things for yourself that you could recall just off the top of your head? Well, I mean, the biggest one on that, you know, that I list as that humility, you know, it's not about me, it's about everyone else. Yeah. So literally, how do we make those things happen? So that's a big piece for me, thinking about the group, thinking about the organization, thinking about the company, thinking about the board of directors, the audience, rather than about what I want. I may be able to lead it in a direction based on what I believe is the correct thing to do. However, if the audience wants something different, then that's what they want. Yeah. So you follow them. So these kind of ideas, that's, those are sort of my key things. And that's, I think the biggest advice for that is uh, to define those for yourself. And if you don't define them, then you're kind of wallowing around and not really knowing yeah. what you're doing. Yeah, you'll be a year in and then you won't realize. Yeah. You'll, you'll have a different intention from when you started and yeah. then suddenly it's going off. And, and, and even this, like we're recording this. Yeah, exactly. So um, that, that is also, it's a tangible piece, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, for people to be able to hear how other people think and then go, oh, well, wait a minute. Okay, how do I think? We all started doing this because we just wanted to do it and we just do it. And I don't think any of us actually thought about it in the sense of how do we... How do we think about what we do? How does that change what we do? Yeah. How does that affect what we do? How does that move forward? So it, it, it is those pieces. Yeah. Um, Jet City does classes, correct? Yeah, it's fine. There's yeah. a toilet flushing right now. Yeah, let's just, that. let's just acknowledge that. <laughs> <laughs> um, Jet City does classes, and Seattle is a very artistic yeah. uh, city, so you have a lot of people from the community coming in as like sort of part of the inclusion is... About how many people do you have taking classes right now? Hooey. How do you, um, and how do you structure classes just so you can go forward with that idea? We currently have uh, five, 13 classes running. Yeah. The classes range anywhere from 18 people to 10. So, um, you know, that'd be hard math for me to do in yeah. my head because, again, I'm a theater major. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so it's, um, and that's every quarter. So we do classes quarterly. That's awesome. Yeah, education is, is a large piece. And, and what's interesting to me is that the education isn't about people who are saying, I want to come here and I want to work my way up to be on stage. A lot of it, especially our beginning classes, are people who are saying, I am a developer at Microsoft. I'm a project manager. I have to stand in front of people and I have to talk and I am crippling anxiety. So what will I do? I could do Toastmasters or I could do an improv class. And they show up and they do an improv class and they go, oh my God, that's really fun. Yeah. And and now I want to do another one and I want to do this. So it, it really is about helping people in their everyday lives. And that's the way we kind of tried to teach it as well. Yeah, It's that sense of let's go over this thing. Let's play the game. Let's play the skill. Go out in the week and then tell me how this changed for you or come back with any ideas. And then beginning of the class, like what hit you? Did you try it? What yeah. worked? You know, were you aware of status this week? How did that <laughs> yeah. affect? How did that affect how you were at work? You know, and I think that sort of piece is really important because that's also teaching people to use improv in their life. You know, we've had the anecdotes before of uh, a woman who was in Phil Aaronsberg class who was like, "I'm I'm done with this marriage. I am going to talk to my husband. I'm getting divorced." And then she basically just at this thing stopped and went, "What if I just listen to what he says?" And then say, this is what I heard. And so, and sort of had this moment of going, okay, let's actually have a conversation. And it was because she was in improv class with him. And then as a result, she's like, yeah, so we're in counseling and we figured it out and we're doing this and we're doing this. I'm like, great. That's amazing. Yay. You know? That's amazing. And again, those things, I think people take classes for lots of different reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have to allow for all that. At first when we started, it was like, yeah, we're all going to, we're going to make the best actors we can. 
sometimes that's not really what people want. No. They want it for whatever reason they want it for, and we have to provide that. The mentality going in for teachers of we are teaching these students, kind of grooming them to potentially come up onto right. the stage. I think that's a little, it's not immediately apparently toxic, but it is in the long run. Yeah. It becomes toxic because there's an ulterior motive behind, you're not just simply presenting the ideas to them. And we have a two-tier piece. So basically we have 101, 102, 103, and that is basically there. Once you get into our 200 level, you will be doing performances, 201, 202, and 203 now. Uh, and 203 does actually like four public performances. Uh, and our goal is, again, hopefully we're putting you together in the group and then at that point, you go. There's the pocket. There's a slate. Do stuff. Figure it out. Meet with other people. Make your own group. You know, if we could have helped to support groups like Jet City Improv when it started in 92, yeah. then there'd be tons of groups doing stuff and there'd be tons of theaters. So let's do that. You yeah. know, Let's get people to help build their own capacity so they can be their own juggernaut. I'm sure that you've had people go through classes and everyone's like, this this person like this person's really yeah. good um when they come to auditions do you take that previous uh like those interactions what people have seen from classes do you take that into account or do you hold auditions as a completely separate entity it's like what they present for with the audition is what they're presenting and that's how we take them in yeah we kind of have to and it's hard especially when like their teacher is the core member who's then the director who's then doing it and going like, oh, well, I've seen better stuff from them in class. It's there. And what I always have to remind them is that's great. However, what are they going to do in front of an audience? Because that's what this situation of auditions are like. It's high stress. So you're either going to make this work or you're not. And if you don't, that's kind of going to tell what it's going to be like in front of the audience. So we have to take this moment in time as the fact of what you have to judge someone. And that's the moment in time you have to look at and say, does that work? Does it not work? And how do we move forward from there? Uh, and that's can be harsh sometimes. Yeah. And I also know uh, I, every one of us have different sensibilities. Um, the directors will hold the auditions and then they'll hold their callbacks. And then I'll sit down with them and we talk about who you want to cast. And, and it's always fascinating to me where people are like, oh, yeah, and this person. And I absolutely love them. And I'm like, great. Okay. Wonderful. I don't see it. But you do. You're the director. So you know what? Make it happen. Wonderful. And then there'll be other people too where I'm like, I want that person for Jet City Improv. Like, they are great. And other and other cast members who've been there helping it, they're like, really? Because I didn't see that at all. And I'm like, I that's just a different aesthetic. And, you know, and I feel like, well, I cast you, so please trust me. Like, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, I, and there's just something that I look for that's like, what is the magnetic thing yeah. that's going to make audiences go oh wow what are they doing the lean forward right Uh, interesting oh so how many people decide who when you audition is it just a small panel of people do you invite the entirety of the cast to come and watch the auditions or we invite cast members to come in to help facilitate the auditions uh bottom line on on deciding who was for for jet city improv is mike and i okay oh just just you two yeah the people have strong opinions sometimes about things have you run into trouble with that, or is the cast pretty gracious in terms of... And no, uh, we haven't really run into a whole lot of trouble with that. There have been times, too, when the cast has been... Um, where they, uh, you know, well, I feel really strongly about this person because I know them in classes, or I know this, and I know this, and I know this, so I feel really strongly about them. But I'm like, that's great, but we didn't see it. Yeah. So it didn't go. It just depends. Uh, it depends on the individuals. Um, 
Uh, I know we've changed that process over the years because for many years uh, we we used to have you know everyone who was there helping to facilitate. We'd all sit down and we'd all get input and we'd all do this. We'd all do this, and after a while, it was just too much to manage. It was yeah. too many voices to manage. Yep. And and it's like great. Thank you for your input. I, w- I want to get your input, and then we're going to write all that down. And then I need you to leave, and then Mike and I are going to sit down, and we're going to talk about what we think and what we feel, yeah. and then we'll look back at their input and then see what we can put together. Yeah. Um, do you have uh, do you have much overlap from unexpected productions coming over here, or are they two pretty much separate entities? Not a whole lot. Okay. Not a whole lot. A few people here and there. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, you don't have to. Uh, could, could you describe the relationship between Jet City and uh, unexpected productions uh, currently, I guess? Yeah. I mean, we've worked together on various different things, uh, and over the years, you know, it has changed quite a bit. Um, I, at this festival, uh, at the Seattle Festival of Improv, I think was a big piece for uh, let's stop sitting in our armed camps yeah. and let's actually all come together so that we can do something. Yeah. Um, and that process is still an ongoing process. Um, I think sometimes people will, I'm comfortable here, so I'm going to do my thing here. They've done quite a bit to help open up to the community with their duos on on Wednesday nights. So that has been a really great piece of our students, our performers going in to do stuff. And that has really kind of helped to open some things up too. We have the open auditions for people. So we've had members of of UP that have been here doing shows left and right. So so yeah, it's, it's, you know, it goes back and forth. Yeah, that's an... um... I think it's, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but the more improv that the community sees, the, the more uh, they're going to come to the yeah. other theaters. Like, oh, I really like it here. I yeah. really like it over there. In terms of, I guess Seattle's big enough. So in terms of classes, though, that's that that's another point of contention that could potentially happen. Or is there enough people? There's enough people around Seattle to fill both classes. I think there is. I think there's enough people to fill more than enough classes. Okay. Um, and, I mean, the city is growing by leaps and bounds as it continues as well. Uh, so I don't think there's any kind of shortage on on people taking classes, and people have also taken our classes and they've gone back and taken classes again. And, and I don't think that's really something to worry about. If it gets to a point where suddenly classes aren't drawing, then there might be other reasons. Yeah, and then we'll figure something else out. Um, so as the city of Seattle grows, do you see a, a trajectory for improv? How it may potentially evolve as it? Do you see like if if it gets so big, the potential? I mean, the pocket theater kind of. It's not really an improv theater, but it's no. a, it's a it, improv. There's a prevalent improv there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, do you have any sort of guesses how it's going to be treated? Because Seattle's becoming kind of one of the new big cities. I mean, there's the classic LA, Chicago, New York, and I don't think that trio is ever going to be pushed right. by a fourth city. But then there's a lot of sub cities, and I would certainly include Seattle in those in that second tier of big cities. So, do you think yeah. improv will evolve? And how do you think? Do you have any sort of guess? Oh, I, I think it's going to continue to grow. I mean, the and and just judging on that from raw data, the amount of groups applying to the Seattle Festival of Improv every year grows exponentially. Uh, the amount of local groups pretty much doubles almost every single year. So, uh, and that is just showing what's happening in this community and it just continues to double and grow and grow and grow. That means the festival is going to have to change at some point. Yeah. It's going to have to alter in some way. There's other things that we've done. Like we now have, um, September we do guest fest where we have these small groups are all coming in to perform. Uh, we do, we are part of improv month, which is partnering with comedy sports and with the pocket to do improv month in various different stages. So we had shows here, we had shows at comedy sports, we had shows there. 
uh, you know, we, we will, I think continuing to partner and work with people is kind of the key. And again, partnering as per how people want to get involved. Mm -hmm. If you want to get involved, get involved. And if you don't, then don't. Um, we have a large thing coming up soon that's about um, diversity. And it's sort of a large discussion that we're calling Stirring the Pot. Hmm. And it's UP, it's comedy sports, it's Clayton from the pocket, it's us, it's people from all over. And they're all coming together basically to talk about uh, racial issues, social issues. And let's bring it out because the improv community is getting stronger and larger. And how do we just start to talk about these things? I think representation in terms of performance is, is very important. Yeah. It's very important to see. Uh, so that's, wait, what are your thoughts on, on the, on moving forward with diversity, especially in a big, because improv typically is a, is a very white, like it's just yeah. as that's most theaters you go to. It's primarily, uh, primarily white people on stage. And that's like, of, of course, that's not a bad thing, but we also, that diversity is very important for, if the people on stage aren't matching the people in the audience uh, and people can't see, it's like, because one of the great things about uh, improv is that it's uh, very LGBT friendly. Uh, there's like a, a lot of people in the queer community uh, who are performers yeah. and that's wonderful. It's wonderful to see. Um, but then that's, that's only one portion of the community coming in. So do you have any, any ideas on how to promote diversity within improv? I mean, I, I think we're already seeing a lot of pieces, and, and the biggest thing that says that is when I look at the um, the performers, no, I don't see it, especially within our core company. It definitely feels very white. Uh, however, when I look at our student base, our student base is extremely diverse. Awesome. So that student base coming in is extremely diverse. So how can we continue to foster them and to help them to then grow to the point where then they can be auditioning and being cast as core company members or going in? So that's kind of the key is building up people's capacity and building up the capacity of everyone and all the groups that we possibly can. And I think that's the direction to go. It's a longer process. Yeah. I mean, it's not something that's going to happen tomorrow. <laughs> However, it's, I think, sustainable. And so, that's kind of the key is yeah. we have to be out there. We've done programs for years working in, um, working in disadvantaged youth and, and other programs I don't know if you know, we do free weekly classes for incarcerated youth at the King County Juvenile Detention Facility. I did not know that at all. Wow. We do uh, free classes for uh, street-involved homeless youth here in the University District. We do that every week. That's amazing. We do classes down in South Seattle for kids who are going through drug rehab, youth drug rehab programs. Yes. Um, and oh, that's just, those yeah. are those programs. And then during the summer, we do programs for little kids who are like severely burned, uh, going through cancer treatments, parents going through cancer, cerebral palsy, spina bifida. So we do that outreach and that's something we fundraise and we raise money for in order to be able to send our actors out there and we pay the actors to go out and do this and yeah. to train and to do that. I think some of those things helps to bring the word to some communities that, hey, this is there and we're open and available and come see a show. Yeah. And then, by the way, come take a class and then come do this or come and audition even. So the more you can sort of step into communities to do work and to talk and to be present, and then the more you can open up the access, then it can change. It's inclusion. It's inclusion. That's, that's one of right. the core tenets. And so, if, and if you're going to believe in that core tenet, then you have to go, what am I going to do to help make this happen? Yeah. That's, that's writing it down and then questioning it. Do I really believe this right. thing? And then re-questioning it too. Am I doing enough? Yeah. And what else could we be doing? 
Yeah, that's. Do you have any any what else could you be doing currently, or what else maybe uh, the the broader improv community could be doing? Uh, do you think to to reach out to people who might not might not have had the opportunities in life to uh, experience or try improv because it's a really it's nice thing about it is yeah. it's cheap. I yeah, mean, it's virtually free to it's do. It's accessible. There's no reading level dependency. Yeah, uh, I mean it's 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 an accessible art form and it's an everyman's art form. Our first step has been. We've kind of been very reactive. People have come to us and said, we want to do this. We have a workshop that runs at the end of every month, which is just for um, uh, women only or female identifying. And the goal on that was is that we were approached by students and by teachers who said, we want to do this because we feel like it's important in order to grow uh, the female improvisers in our community. Wonderful. Great. Uh, we have other improvisers who come to us and said, we want to do one that is for the LGBTQ community. Great. What we don't want to do is start saying these are boxes where you get to put in. Yeah. So part of this diversity inclusion thing that we're doing, the stirring the pot, is to go, look, I'm a, I'm a straight white guy. I can decide what you want, but you don't want that. Yeah. I need to know what you want. That way we can then help. But I'm not going to make choices for you because I'm not. And that's not my job and that's not my position. And I should not make decisions for you. I should be listening and be responsive. Yeah. So how do we do that? We invite everyone to the table. Then we start to talk about what's going on. And then you can tell us what you might be interested in. And now we'll go forward. Yeah. And that's that, That's where you get the true information, right. the, true, right. the true conversation. That's exactly. That's where that's going to come into play. Yeah. You said the word earlier, and it's a buzzword for me uh, right now, especially in the improv community. But it's about being present. It's about yeah. being completely in the, fully in the moment. What steps do you take to promote that within your theater, uh, both on stage and off stage? Because I think that's a just a core core tenet of improv that's very important to acknowledge. You know, I think it's about being available for it, and and then also making the space for it. I think that's just kind of the key. I mean, all this sort of spins back around to our first questions that we had, which is about leadership. Yeah. In order to take a leadership position, it's not going, we're going to do this. And I make these decisions and this is the way it goes. It's a lot of listening. It's a lot of how can we include, what are your thoughts and processes on this? Okay, we may go that direction and here's why we'll go that direction. Or we may not go that direction and here's why we're not going to go that direction. So, um, but it's being responsive. Yeah. And you can't, be a leader without listening and without being able to hear what people are saying and then being able to let go of also what you might want to do. That's hard. That's I hard. Let go of control. <laughs> and so that's a hard thing too, because it's leadership, but you're letting go of control. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's I, I, the option is either to double down and sort of pull in the reins. Yeah. And that's, I think, I think there are appropriate situations where it's like, that's okay. This is getting out of control. We need a focus point. But I, most of the time, I think, it's a, a bigger risk to just let go, and usually it's a risk that pays off ultimately. Because yeah. when you're when you're doubling down on those things, sometimes then you're starting to believe the lie that you've created in your head. Yeah, like I got more electoral votes than anyone ever before, <laughs> and I mean I, I don't mean to say it that way, but it's yeah. true. Like, no, you start great. to believe your own narrative. Yeah, and then you triple down, and then, and then you, you triple down, you triple down, you keep going, and the truth is, is that the base of that is not true. Yeah. And then thirty-nine percent of uh, people approve you, and the rest resent you. Exactly. So you you really have to start figuring out how you're not, you know, getting into your own feedback loop, 
You know, it's that thing right now on Facebook. When you go on Facebook, you're only going to see things from people who yeah. believe the things that you believe and say the things that you want to say. And so that keeps going. So you're in this feedback loop. Yeah. That's great. But that doesn't help you learn. So, um, you know, being aware of that feedback loop in your own head as well in this leadership position. So that you are listening and then challenging your own ideas and your own beliefs and saying, what do I believe in? Do I, do I think this decision is the right decision to make? And then being able to go, well, let's scrap it on. Let's redo these things. Yeah. And if you, if you actively challenge all of your beliefs and they still hold, that means they're strong. Great. Uh, yeah. And then if you actively challenge your belief and they fall apart, then it's like, yeah. okay, and then you're like, where well, do I go from here? Yeah. Yeah. Time to rethink that. Yeah. 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 Everything that I want has been, okay. uh, brought to the surface. Is there anything that you wish to say, anything that you want to talk about that you don't think we've touched on that's important in terms of artistic direction? I, the only one I think that, that kind of, uh, is that, um, like Mike and myself, I feel like in this world of, of improv, we end up with the same thing where we have accidental administrators. You know, we didn't start it to start a company. We didn't start it to do this work. We didn't start this to manage people. We started it so we could do some work and then it evolves and it evolves and it evolves and it evolves. It would be really great sometime in the future for people to start thinking of, I am doing this work because I want to be an artistic leader, mm-hmm. which means I have to start letting go of the control of this or letting go of my own need to perform or my own thing. Yeah. And I think that's a, just a growing process that we're on in this, in this world of how we do improv. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I look forward to that happening sometime. Yeah, that's. Do you think? Uh, do you think that's going to happen? I mean, there's oh, a, God, yeah. there's a growing there's a growing improv base. Why, why do you think it's growing? And I, there's more just more facets in improv. There's more interesting people. Like. Uh, the easiest thing right now is this: the fact that we are doing this podcast. Yeah, means there's a thought process that you came up with that said, "How do people be leaders in this community?" Yeah. And then you said, let's find those things out and let's talk about it and let's define it and let's have interviews with them. Yeah. Uh, even that process, that I think would not have happened five, ten years ago. Yeah. So so we are moving in that direction where these things are started to come into the zeitgeist of what people are thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's keep going. Yeah, and I think I, I certainly have experienced with the, the younger generation, my generation, was able to grow up seeing improv theaters in a, a random city. Right. It's much. It's not just whose lines it anyway on TV yeah. that you see every now and again. It's oh, there is a prevalent improv community. The more that happens, the more young people and especially kids react very well to improv. They if, yeah. once they get in and then they are able to do it and they're able to land a joke. It's like the world has been opened up to them. And so I think it's just. I think it's going to keep growing. Yeah. It's really exciting to see. I mean, when I started it, there was no, you never watched anyone doing it. Yeah. It was you. You, you read a book on Spolin, you went, let's try that game. Yeah. Hey, cool. Yeah. Wow. What do you know? That was fun. I mean, you, you just figured it out. The yeah. fact that people can actually even grow up watching it. Uh, there is a picture that's in here that we have of Graham Downing uh, from Death and Taxes. Oh, yeah. Graham, core company member at Jet City, uh, when he was 12 or 13 showing up at a Jet City improv show and getting on stage for his like birthday or something or as an audience. Yeah. And and that someone took the picture and he brought the picture to us and gave it to us after he was cast at like the age of like 19 or 20. And I'm like, wow, this dude's been watching our shows for seven to eight years. Yeah. Holy crap. And that sort of idea of if you're not fostering kids that are in high schools and in colleges, you can't grow those improvisers that are going to be much more brilliant than you could ever hope to be. Yeah. 
And you have to start doing that now so that then they can be the next gods of improv that are going to be much better. But your job is to foster them and you have that capability. So let's do it. Teach them everything you know now. That way in 30 years, they can be 30 times better. Yeah. I had uh, actually a similar experience yesterday. I performed with Jen Hunter who I watched perform in Spokane when I was 14. <laughs> and I was like, she, like I, w- I wasn't yeah. even taking classes. I was just going to see these shows, and she was this performer. And then yeah. she, she moved away, and I, we both went in different directions, yeah. and I just met her for the first time yesterday when we got on stage together. It was like, oh, my gosh. Like, that's... It, cool. Yeah, it's like, oh, I was so, like, tiny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but that's really cool, and it's... it's I mean, it's wonderful because it's such an inclusive community and it teaches inclusion. Uh, this has been the, the hot word, but it's a great word. It's a great it word is. to be a hot word. I, I hope as those tenants go out to people, it will affect, I know it will affect the way that they live and then they, they bring those tenants to the people around them. And that's just, it's just, it's a great, it feels like a community. It yeah. feels like you can go, I can go anywhere on this globe, and if I find out that someone else is an improviser, I pretty much can trust them immediately. Yeah, and it's and it's I've you know I've, people will sleep on. Uh, I, it's like, hey, come sleep on my couch. Oh, you do improv? Are you gonna you're gonna be in a show with us? Right. Oh, you don't have a place to stay? I got a couch for you. I got a couch for you. I, like, I went to to Dublin, and you know, oh, there's an improv show happening, and they're like, oh, you want to play? It's like you've never met me. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? Okay, great. Uh, and those kind of things where it's just, there is sort of a, a, oh, all right, well, let's play. Great. Wonderful. I love that. So before we end, I want to, yeah. I want to touch on, you brought up when I, you, you brought up, how would you say if you are a performer and you are looking to be in a position of leadership, how do you go about being okay with relinquishing uh, those things that you need to relinquish like being on stage and being being on stage is a big one because that's the reason that we're right. doing it. How um, is, the, is, there a, is there a mindset that you can set yourself into? Is there a, a, a process uh, that you can go through that would make you more ready and accepting of, be, of moving to a more administrative side uh, while still being artistically involved? Uh, or is it just a process that you fall you accidentally fall into? <laughs> I mean, for me, I think it's a process yeah. of accidentally fallen into. Um, uh, I would say just for people to to start to think in terms of um, know what you need to keep yourself artistically alive as far as a performer, and then do those things mm-hmm. so that then that kind of frees you up that you can do other things and not have to worry about constantly be worrying about performing. Um, I have the, the show that I've done with Joel Dale, uh, who is now in Portland, he's going to be moving to Austin, called Phone, uh, which is where we have an old phone that has a, a microphone in it, and we hand it to the audience. So when we're on stage, we can make a phone call, and someone in the audience picks up the phone, and we're talking to them. Oh, whoa. So it allows the audience members to be on stage with us, but they're in the dark, and so they don't have to think about oh my God, everyone's staring at me or this. And then we found then they hand the phone to people they don't know. So they're having experience with other audience members. And so it's really cool. But that kind of thing feeds me artistically. So I can do that with Joel once or twice a year. And then I feel like I'm okay. Hit the buzz. (laughs) Right. And then I got that. And then it's like, great, now I can do this. But I, I have to define what I want. And so then I know I can do these things. And then that feeds me artistically to then go, okay, I can do this. But knowing those things for yourself. Yeah, just on it's it's self awareness. Yeah, yeah. self awareness. Um, awesome. I don't have anything. Do you have some plugs? Do you have anything that you want to plug for uh, for the listeners? 
Uh, wow, okay, yeah. Uh, the, the show's coming up. Tribe Called Yes, yeah. Opens up here beginning of March. Um, after that one, we have a show called The Startup, which opens up, which is all uh, tech culture. Uh, so it's basically about uh, Silicon Valley, but it's sort okay. of this. So it's called The Startup. Uh, and then following that is a show that was one of the first long-form shows we had ever created, um, The Lost Folio. So it's the improvised Shakespeare. Oh. And uh, yeah, and it's I, just I love it. absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Um, so it kind of has a, a near and dear place in my heart. Uh, and then we'll we'll cancel out the season and start back up, and we're beginning pitches to figure out what the next season is. Awesome! Oh yeah. yeah, that's. Uh, do you have a, a website? I mean, Jet City Improv. Jet City Improv. Dot org. Yeah, check it out there. Awesome! Uh, thank you again so much. Andy. Thank you. It's been it's been a great. Uh, I'm fascinated to see the different <laughs> perspectives because I've done three of these so far, and it's they've all been quite different. Actually, surprisingly different. Cool. So it's, like, it's it's very interesting. Well, I can't wait to hear the other ones. Though. Yeah, no, it's, and I got, I got more, I got too many people lined up. I'm going to be <laughs> listening to my own voice and other people's voices oh, for good. the yeah. next several weeks. You can find uh, me at jacobalexanderferg.com. Uh, thank you so much for listening.